0: I want to start this morning with a story. Jim Zetz suffers from stage 4 pancreatic cancer. In fact, doctors have told Jim that he might not see his 11-year-old daughter's next birthday, let alone her wedding day. But Jim has refused to let his impending death rob he and Josie of one of life's most special moments. Jim knows he won't be around when Josie gets married, But that didn't stop him from walking her down the aisle in advance. In a backyard ceremony with Josie on his arm wearing a pint-sized wedding dress, they took their sacred stroll. The event was arranged by a wedding photographer. Lindsay Volitaro knows the importance of wedding pictures. She not only snapped the photographs, she planned the ceremony complete with cake and presents. One day when Josie does walk down the aisle to be married, she'll have photographs of her dead walking with her. And you can bet those photos of her and her dead will be featured prints in her future wedding album. And as we've been learning, likewise, God is into wedding photos. Jesus loves his church. He died with her in mind. Jesus is on a mission to save us. One day we'll be reunited and forever we'll be the bride of Christ. And until that day arrives, Jesus has left us some photos. For marriage is a wedding picture. Christian marriage speaks of eternal spiritual realities. This is what makes marriage sacred and special. The holiest of relationships. Both husbands and wives are posing for pictures by how they conduct their marriage. When wives submit and respect their husbands as head of the home, and as husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church, they both preach the gospel and they certainly please the Lord. Over these last two weeks, we've been working our way through Paul's instructions on marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33 This morning, again, I want to read the whole passage, but then we're going to focus especially on today's text, verses 31 through 33. Beginning in verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And now this morning's text Verse 31 is taken from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's a quote. God had just performed the world's first surgery. He had put Adam into a deep sleep, and he had opened his side. The Hebrew translation says that he took out something curved. Perhaps it was a rib. Maybe it was a bone. I know it doesn't sound quite as romantic, but maybe even a piece of cartilage. Whatever it was that God used, he used it to fashion the woman. When Adam came out from under the anesthesia, God presented to him his bride. He named her Eve. Eve was God's gift to Adam. But after the operation, the question arose, how does this marriage operate? How do you order a marriage for long-term success? And it's verses 24 and 25 of Genesis that now Paul quotes that provide us the answer. In Genesis, a mysterious voice utters these words. And we're not sure whose voice it was. It could have been Adam's, maybe God's. It's possible it was an insertion by Moses, the human author of Genesis. But the words that were spoken link the first marriage to all marriages that come afterwards. They lay out four ground rules for every marriage. The voice declares, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul quotes this now in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. And in so doing, he codifies the first wedding vows. Genesis 2 finishes the thought, And they were both naked the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. Here Genesis gives us, and Paul confirms, the four essentials of every marriage. I call them the musts of marriage. Here are the four musts of a marriage. First is severance. You leave your father and mother. Second is permanence. You're joined to a spouse I like how the old King James puts it, you cleave unto your wife. Third is unity, and they shall become one flesh. In essence, the two lives are weaved together into one. And then lastly, there was intimacy. According to Genesis, they were naked and were not ashamed. Obviously, they conceived a physical and emotional closeness. Here's the abbreviated version of the four musts of a marriage. You leave cleave, weave, and then conceive. This is God's formula for a successful marriage. And again, as with everything marriage, this too is a spiritual picture. These marital musts are a portrait of the Christian's commitment to our Lord Jesus. For just as both spouses leave their past... They say goodbye to their parents and their prospective suitors and then they cleave to their spouse. Believers likewise break allegiance with their former lives and they form new bonds with Jesus Christ. We adapt and we adjust to life God's way or we begin to weave our life together with His. We call this discipleship. And that's the kind of faith and commitment that conceives an intimacy with God, a deep connectedness, a closeness, an experience that all humans crave. Two weeks ago, we talked about the wife's wedding pictures. Last week, we spoke of the husband's wedding pictures, their unique roles. Well, in verse 31, we find our wedding pictures. These four musts of a marriage apply to both husband's and wives. And the first, for a marriage to succeed, there has to be severance. You have to leave your father and mother. But that includes other entanglements as well. There are other things that can hinder a marriage. After you marry, you terminate any and all competing relationships with males or females. Anything that might risk or interfere with the marriage. Put the same idea in the positive and it's all about making your marriage your top priority and your chief loyalty. Once there was a boy, he was sitting with his grandma at a wedding. When the bride and groom lit the unity candle and then blew out their respective candles, do you know what that means? The little guy responded, yeah, that means no more old flames. And that's exactly what it means. When a bride and groom say yes to each other, they say no to every other person in the world. You know, there are a lot of women with whom I'm friendly, but I've chosen not to be close friends with any woman but my wife. My deepest affections are reserved for Kathy. You see, a marriage won't be successful if the wife is out with her girlfriends more than she's there at home with her husband or a husband If he's hanging out with his pals more than he's home with his wife, that's a recipe for disaster. Both spouses are sliding each other. Wives need girlfriends. Husbands need their buddies. But there can be no confusion about who comes first. Here's my suggestion for newlyweds. She can have her friends. He can have his friends. But both of you together need to make your friends. Every married couple needs friends who believe the way they do about making a marriage work. You need people around you who will support your marital commitment. You know, sometimes outside friends become a hindrance to a marriage. But the chief source of marital interference comes from parents. This is why Genesis is specific. A man and a woman shall leave his father and mother. I mean, when one spouse fails to cut the cord and keeps running home to mom and dad or keeps pulling their parents into their issues, the other spouse feels betrayed. It's been said, in some marriages, the problems are all relative. Once a woman told her husband, Do you have anything to say before my mother gets here? Not good. You do terrible damage to a marriage when you make your spouse feel that they're second fiddle to a parent. I'll never forget when my oldest son, Zach, was a tot. My dad doesn't forget either. We would visit mom and dad, and my dad would stuff Zach full of chocolate. As a grandparent now myself, I have a lot more empathy for my dad now than I did then. I understand the temptation. But we would bring Zach home and he'd be bouncing off the walls. You know, we couldn't get him down. And so my wife said, Sandy, you need to talk to your dad. You need to get him to stop. Well, I'll never forget the conversation my dad and I had in the garage. I'm sure I didn't approach it exactly right, and neither did he. As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correct, he threatened to sue us <laughs> for his grandparental rights. Thankfully, after a Couple of conversations we were able to settle out of court, <laughs> but it did make for a tense several weeks. And yet, even at that early stage, my wife needed to know that my allegiance was with her, even over someone I loved as much as my dad. Once there was a newlywed daughter she called home, crying and complaining about her freshly married hubby. The once happy couple had just experienced their first major, all-out fight. Her mother answered the phone and listened sympathetically to her daughter for over an hour. Finally, the daughter asked to speak to her dad. He was on the phone for only a few minutes. His wife wanted to know what happened. Was anything resolved? The dad said she wanted to come home. The wife asked, well, what did you tell her? And this wise father answered, I told her she was home. Hey, if you're the parent of a married child, stay out of it if you can. Stay out of God's way. Let God work in that new marriage. And if you're married, leave your dad and your mom and be joined to your spouse. Here's a second must for a marriage. Be joined to your wife. Or as the old King James renders it, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. You leave and then you cleave. Severance is followed by permanence. You see, marriage is for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live. It's a lifelong commitment. The statute on limitations regarding marriage is until death do us part. And this is a must for a marriage. There's no way a marriage will succeed without a vow of permanence. Several years ago, a Fox News report talked about the trend today to rewrite the traditional marriage vows. Couples have replaced until death do us part with a long list of alternatives. For example, for as long as we continue to love each other. Here's another. For as long as our love shall last. Or how about this one? Until our time together is over. I mean, people today are no longer marrying for as long as we both shall live, but for as long as we both shall love. I think a more honest way of wording it would be, until a better offer comes along. Or maybe a younger, cuter babe. Reminds me of the groom. He was hanging out with his best man just minutes before walking down the aisle. When he confessed, he said, man, it's odd. But until now, I haven't really... I haven't really been nervous, and yet I'm starting to realize marriage is a big commitment. Man, seven or eight years can be a really long time. (laughs) It's sad, but that seems to be the prevailing attitude today among many couples. In fact, a New York Times article recently suggested that marriage could be reduced to a series of short-term contracts where the couple sort of re-upped every five to ten years. One author, though, countered that thought. He said, the lower the sights, the more dispensable the relationship, the less and less we would invest in it. And I agree. Without a dogged, hearty dedication, marriage stands no chance at all. It's too hard. Hey, a marriage is the ultimate in unselfishness. You have to cultivate a taste for humble pride when you're married. Humble pie, I mean. You know what I mean. It's not for the faint of heart. It demands the highest level of commitment. This means that if a lifetime commitment isn't a couple's expectation, if it's not the goal of their determination, then the odds of it happening are extremely slim. There's so much in our culture today aimed at driving spouses apart. You see, marriage involves cutting old ties, but it also requires forging new ties The Hebrew word translated join or cleave, it means to adhere. It means to glue together. It's a permabond. One Bible commentator I heard translates it weld. Leave your parents and be welded to your spouse. You only weld what's meant to be permanent. Go to a Jewish wedding ceremony and you'll witness an interesting couple, an interesting custom between the couple. The groom will stomp a glass A rabbi explains it, pointing to its fragments, we exhort the young people to guard jealously the sacred relationship into which they've entered. For once it's been fractured, it takes a miracle for it to be fully restored. And this is true of all marriages. The most important component in a marriage is the trust that's shared between the husband and the wife. Guard that trust with all costs. Don't allow any other relationship to break that trust or to even invite doubt into the marriage. Leave others behind and cling only to your spouse. Years ago, Huey Lewis in the news, they had a song entitled Happy to be Stuck with You. It became Sandy and Kathy's theme song. We leaved and we cleaved and now we're stuck with each other. But you know, this provides tremendous motivation. In fact, this is the incentive that every marriage needs to be the best that it can be. Hey, if Sandy is stuck with Kathy, and Kathy is stuck with Sandy, if we've burned all our bridges, if there's no possibility for retreat, if our only choice is to get over it and to work through it, then we'll get her done. But if there's an escape hatch... If there's an easy way out, trust me, our lazy, selfish natures might just take it. There has to be a commitment to permanence. You know, Hollywood couples are notorious for brief marriages. The famous Scientology couple, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, they only made it for four years. Apparently, a lifelong commitment was for them a mission impossible. In contrast, though, there is another couple who stayed married for 60 years, six long decades. Peter and Joan Graves. Ironically, Peter Graves, who, by the way, is a devout Christian, starred in the original Mission Impossible. After they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, a reporter asked Peter, How did you do it? His answer was simple but profound. He said, We promised. For a believer in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, keeping a promise is not a mission impossible. When a husband, when a wife, stays committed to God and their spouse, then the Lord enables them to keep that promise. I've used this illustration many times, but in World War II, when the German bombers were reducing the city of London to rubble, at times the situation looked bleak. During one such siege, The prime minister, Winston Churchill, he went on the radio and he encouraged his fellow Londoners to take heart. He said, wars are not won by evacuation and neither are good marriages. Stick with it. Leave behind old ties and then cleave to your spouse. And then you weave together a new life, which brings up the third must in a marriage, And that's unity. Paul writes, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two shall become one. A husband and wife, they leave, they cleave, and then they weave their lives together into one. Harmony becomes the goal. I like to compare marriage with moving to a foreign country. Let's say tomorrow... I moved to Germany. Immediately, I would have to learn a new language. I would have to develop a taste for new foods and new cooking. I'd have to familiarize myself with new customs. I would have to learn how to translate Fahrenheit into Celsius and miles into kilometers. I'd have to fall in love with soccer. And value the World Cup over the Georgia-Florida game. I mean, I'd have to adapt to an entirely new way of life. Well, welcome to marriage. It is no less challenging. For your spouse speaks a different language. She likes different food. She even cooks them differently than your mom did. She holds different customs. She has different interests. She practices different habits. And here's the issue. If I move to Germany, I can't just sit back with a pompous attitude and tell all my German neighbors my way is best. That everyone in their country should adapt to me. Hey, guess who's going to end up miserable? Not my neighbors, but me. It won't be the Germans. It'll be an arrogant me. And this is the same scenario with marriage. For the two to become one, the husband has to adapt to his wife, and the wife has to adapt to her husband. Instead of trying to change your spouse, both of you need to be willing to change for your spouse. Some of you might remember Bob Bryant. Bob was a friend of mine. He was a former elder here at Calvary Chapel. Years ago, Bob and his wife Patricia, they moved to Vermont. But when they were with us, Patricia opened up a landscaping company. Bob was her only employee. Always accused him of sleeping with the boss to try to advance in the company. (laughs) Once a friend of mine hired Bob and Patricia to do some work. Well, Bob was out tilling the soil one day and my friend walked up to him and asked him, he said, Bob, do you like to garden at home? Bob answered, no, not really. My friend said, well, then why do you do it? And Bob replied, Well, gardening is Patricia's passion, and Patricia is my passion. Imagine a former Marine saying something that mushy about his wife. Does your heart good, doesn't it? Gardening is Patricia's passion, and Patricia is my passion. I've never forgotten that. His wife was his passion, and he showed it by making her interests his. See, this is how two very different and diverse people harmonize and become one. It's called. There's a word for it. It's called unselfishness. It's been said of marriage, when a man marries a woman, the two become one. The problem, though, is deciding which one. <laughs> but that shouldn't be the case. Unity in marriage isn't one person steamrolling over the other, getting their way at the expense of their spouse, Unity isn't an assimilation or a domination, it's a cooperation. It's a wife and a husband learning to find a common cadence, getting in step with one another. Unity is two people learning how to agree. See, the moment you get married, you become one spiritually. But if you want to be one mentally and emotionally and physically, it requires some bending and learning and adjusting and lots and lots of of consideration. Hey, some single folks can't wait until they get married. They view marriage as the end of all their problems. (laughs) Yeah, you married folks laugh. If you're single this morning, I hope you always remember this quote. There's only one thing more difficult than living alone, and that's living with someone else. Right after Kathy and I were married, I picked up a hitchhiker one night on my way home from work, and we had traveled just a few miles before he, he gave his life to Jesus. Wonderful thing happened. I witnessed to him and he responded. The guy needed a place to stay that night and so I took him and, and got him a hotel room. And I remember on the drive home thinking, I can't wait to share this with Kathy. She'll be so elated. She'll be so happy. Obviously, my late little adventure had taken several hours. And I hadn't bothered to call my wife and tell her what was going on. When I got home, there my wife was sitting at the kitchen table in front of a burned dinner. The candles on the table had burned down to little nubs. Needless to say, she was a bit peeved at her evangelist husband. And I'll never forget her words. She says, if you'd only called. If you'd just bothered to think about me. And that's the issue, isn't it? You know, when you're single for years, you develop habits and patterns of behavior. Your world revolves around you. The only person you think about is you when it comes to the daily stuff, to the, what you consider to be superficial stuff. You're not thinking about or planning around another person, only you. But then one day you get married and overnight all that changes. Now there's another person who's charting your movements, who inquires about your thoughts who is interested in your actions and your daily activities and wants to be a part of all you do, hey, you need to learn to appreciate that, not resent their involvement. Some of you won't really appreciate this statement until you reach a little bit older age. But here it goes anyway. Marriage is agreeing to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm beside a person who's sleeping in a room that's too cold (laughs) oh my a beautiful unity occurs when both parties to the marriage agree to be unselfish when he's willing to adapt so that you don't sweat and you're willing to sacrifice a little so he don't shake that's when marriage gets good Marriage is the most unselfish thing you'll ever do. The only other activity that comes close is being a parent. It's so true. You can't be happily married to another person until you get a divorce from yourself. Michael Grant, a columnist for the San Diego Union, he writes this about wife his wife and marriage. He says, we continue to adjust to each other, an adjustment that started 19 years ago. And we'll never stop because we each continue to grow and change. We'll always be different. I think of anniversaries as a time for roses and candlelight dinners. She prefers Mexican food in a movie. For Halloween, she thinks apples are a good treat. I say, since when did Halloween have anything to do with nutrition? (laughs) Don't mistake our marriage for a solid marriage. There is no such thing. Marriage is more like an airplane than a rock. You have to commit the thing to flight, and then it creaks and groans, and keeping it airborne depends entirely on attitude, working at it. Working at it, though, we can fly forever. Only my wife and I know how hard it's been or how worthwhile. Well, there's a fourth and final must for marriage, and it is the byproduct of the three that have preceded it, and that's intimacy. In marriage, you leave, you cleave, then you weave, and then it all conceives a unique closeness between you and your spouse. In Ephesians 5, Paul leaves off this verse, but Genesis 2 finishes the thought, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The implication is that Adam and Eve had it going on. The first married couple enjoyed a passionate, even a sexual relationship. They were naked with no inhibitions. You see, they weren't just roommates. There was romance. They weren't just lifers. They were lovers. There wasn't just unity in the relationship. There was also intimacy. Imagine Adam and Eve in the garden. They had no hang-ups. There was nothing that interfered with their relationship. Nothing was hidden from each other. There were no wedges between each other that created distance. They came to each other unmasked and at ease. There was no embarrassment in their relationship or fear of rejection. It was just total acceptance by the person they loved. You see, Adam and Eve were givers, not takers. This couple loved each other more than they loved themselves. And imagine two unselfish givers exploring the joys of sexual love and intimacy. Oh, the thrills they achieved, the depth they perceived, the love they conceived in their relationship. And this needs to be happening in your marriage. You need to have it going on. You see, the point of severance and permanence and unity is to create this intimacy. You leave and cleave and weave so that you can conceive. A child, perhaps, but not necessarily. Rather, you'll conceive a closeness and a creativity, a sharing of the soul and body that's so pleasurable and transparent. It interlocks your lives on the deepest level. I mean, what's the point of buying a new car if you never take it out for a spin? You leave your old car behind, and then you cleave to a new car. If you buy it on credit, it's a lifetime commitment. (laughs) You pay cash for it, it's till death do you part. Then you get to know your car, and you become familiar, you weave a familiarity with your car. But what if, after all that effort and all that expense, you never fire up the engine? And never take the thing for a spin and drop it into gear. This is what intimacy is all about. Understand, sexual intimacy, this isn't an animalistic instinct. God created marriage to safely and creatively and regularly meet our need for sexual intimacy. Sexual attraction isn't sinful, it's holy. And it binds a marriage. Sex undergirds marriage and family. I mean, marriage is a huge commitment. Two people give up their independence. They lay down their lives for one another. You share each other's treasure and trouble. You pledge to cherish your spouse all the days of your life. So what motivates this grand commitment? Well, marriage has a lot of advantages, but don't over-spiritualize and underestimate the obvious. Sex is the prize inside. The joy and the release and the intimacy of sex are the reward for what is a very sacrificial relationship. Sex is the cherry on top of the commitment. It's the wow in the vow. Hey, if it's not going on in your marriage, you're missing out on a big part of what marriage is all about. Realize, sex, the sexual relationship is also a picture of Christ in his church. And I think this is what makes sex sacred and holy. Think of salvation. God woos us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then penetrates our lives and plants the seed of his word in our heart. We receive a new nature. We then cultivate the seed of God's word through faith and repentance until it brings spiritual fruit into our lives that we in turn give back to Jesus in praise. Isn't that exactly what happens in marriage? A husband woos his wife. He penetrates her with his seed. She nurtures that seed and gives birth. She bears fruit, fruit that she then returns to her husband in the form of a child. It's all a picture that points back to spiritual realities. Even sexual intimacy portrays spiritual truths. By leaving and cleaving and weaving, you're conceiving a relationship that will enrich your marriage. In fact, if intimacy isn't happening in your marriage the first place to check for problems are these four musts. What about severance? Is there something hanging on? Is there something hanging around that's become a hindrance to you and your wife in those times of intimacy? What about permanence? Or is there a fear of rejection? What about unity? Are you living unselfishly and looking for ways to be in tighter step with your spouse See, if one or more of these ingredients is missing, don't be surprised if intimacy is lacking in your marriage. It might be time to dust the rust off the musts. Once I was listening to a late night talk show. The host was interviewing a Hollywood star, Hollywood hunk. He was a leading man who had played in several romantic comedies, all these chick flicks and all. And the man was asked to explain what makes a good lover. Well, I know what the talk show host was hoping for. He's hoping for some juicy details. But here's what the man said. A great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life long. And who can be satisfied by one woman all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman to woman. Any dog can do that. Wow. Wow. What an answer. According to this leading man, if you want great sex, you won't find it at the Playboy Mansion. You'll only find it by observing God's four musts for a marriage. Hey, realize that God made the sexual act a powerful social dynamic. Sex is like super glue. And the one thing you learn about super, super glue is you've got to be careful where you apply it you got to watch where you apply it. You glue together the wrong people in the wrong places at the wrong time, and then you try to separate them, and it's very painful pulling them apart. You know, when you put, bind two people together with super glue, they don't just tear along the dotted line, do they? They rip. You try to pull them apart, and they rip, and they tear in places that you never intended. And that's what happens to people's psyches. It creates wounds and hurts. It causes psychological shredding. Remember the word cleave or join. It means glue. Thus, if you cleave before you leave, it gets messy. But where there's severance and then permanence and then a unity together. Hey, you can get that super glue out and you can just spread it everywhere. You can just glue, glue, glue. Empty the bottle, brother. Super glue creates a healthy bond that's strong, that's secure. Here's a great quote. Just as the devil will do everything he can to bring two people together sexually before marriage, he does everything he can to keep them from each other after marriage. Hey, defeat the devil on both fronts. If you're married, then you and your spouse should get it on. If you're single... Well, then you need to wait until the musts are in place. Once there was a man, he had a heart attack. He was rushed to the hospital. He was hooked up on all these tubes and monitors. And, well, his wife finally arrived. She tiptoed to the bedside. She whispered in his ear, honey, I'm here. And then she leaned in and she kissed him on the lips. Suddenly the machines, they went blippity-blip, bleep, 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 started... Ultimately, the husband recovered, but later the wife confessed. My husband was fine, but after 40 years of marriage, it was nice to know I can still make his heart skip a beat when I kiss him. (laughs) And when a husband and a wife faithfully observe the four musts of a marriage, even after four decades together, they can still be thrilling each other with their kisses. So, after God operated on Adam... Gabe Meve, how was this relationship to operate? Well, there were four musts. You leave your father and your flirting. You make your spouse your unrivaled priority. You cleave for life. No retreat, no escape. You just settle it once and for all. It's for keeps. I'm stuck with you. And then you weave a new life together. You adjust and adapt. You stay unselfish. You find common ground. And then you'll conceive an intimacy that will bring you and your spouse years of pleasure. As we've mentioned throughout Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture. Paul reiterates it again in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, marriage has a deeper meaning than we assume. On the one hand, it's concealed in innuendo, it's shrouded in symbolism. Marriage doubles as an illustration, and it, and it portrays a relationship that's higher and holier than we might have ever thought. And yet, there's another side to marriage it, it turns marriage into something that's very, very practical, it's high and holy. And yet marriage is very practical and very simple. The mystery unravels when we pose for the picture. For wives need love. And husbands want respect. And so when it all boils down, it gets real simple. Wife, respect your husband. And husband, love your wife. Do it in Jesus' name and you'll be blessed. Father, thank you. For your word to us today. Lord, I pray that you'll help us take these truths from Holy Scripture and apply them wholly to our lives and to our thoughts and to our attitudes. Lord, we want to be all that you want us to be. We want our marriage to be all that it can and should be. We ask that you bless us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.